James chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It amazes me uh, when, a, when someone in a place called Mendoza finds the podcast and starts listening. And I, I always ask this question when a new country comes on board. Do you know anybody in Mendoza, Argentina that you might have shared it with that now they're listening? I have no idea where these folks are finding it or how, but praise the Lord. Our church, we may think we don't have a big outreach, but we have a large one. And it's getting bigger. We're worldwide, folks. Awesome. You may not see that when you look around here, but we are worldwide and, uh, and growing. It's just, I just never thought that could happen. Um, but I'm thankful. And I hope you are too. Um, the main of this message is your part. Your part. And it goes in parallel with God's part. Because there's a part of your life that's your part. And there's a part of your life that's God's part. And I mean by the things that you do. The responsibilities that you have. And the things that God and God alone can do. And the responsibility God and God alone can have. And sometimes we get those turned around. It's important, though, to never confuse God's part with your part and your part with God's part. Because if you do, when that time comes at the end of the age, God will say to depart. I never knew you. And so we want to impart the truth to you this morning of God's grace that is present and will always be present when God is with us. I was going to ask a question and I decided not to do this. So I'm just going to let you assume that I did this. It's a, it's a very safe way. I just didn't want people to feel embarrassed and have to do some calisthenics this morning. But I was going to ask if anybody, and we can still do it, if any of you have ever sinned to please stand up. You don't have to, but if you ever have, you can stand up if you ever have. If you haven't, you know, don't stand up. Um, all right. And if you believe God's grace is necessary and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is necessary to cover that, then sit back down. If you want to do it on your own, remain standing throughout the service because that's the beginning of your torture for the rest of eternity. <laughs> um, but the, re- the reason I wanted to do that is because in this text, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And there's a commentator out there that said that's talking about people who've never believed. But I believe, as a Christian, we don't walk 100% perfectly in line with the will of God. That we're not always 100% going and doing and thinking and acting the way we should. And at times, God will give us a deeper truth 
a revelation to us. Uh, the Mind of Christ sermon, it's been the most listened to sermon from Sunday night uh, in five years. And, and it's growing. But I recommend, if you haven't watched it or listened to it, listen to it. It'll change your perspective about you and your perspective about your relationship with God and the world around you. It will do that. And if you've listened to it already and you've forgotten the truth of it because the enemy doesn't want you to have it, listen again. I promise you, it will change your perspective. And the reason I mention that is because that was one of those moments for me where all of a sudden something just kind of cleared up in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I began to understand things a little differently and I lost some of the fear and anxiety that I've had for a long time because I understood now how my relationship with this world is different than my relationship with God. And that really transformed how I thought. It's enabled me to open up and to share things and talk about things on a much deeper level without fear of uh, repercussion. Um, last night, my wife and I, had, I asked her to have a conversation. I shared some things. And I think it kind of surprised her. But it was because of that deeper revelation and deeper peace that I have with Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that's all there is. Just one sermon won't cover all the infinite greatness of God. But it will cover enough for me to be challenged to grow deeper. As each sermon should do is unmask or peel off a layer. Depending on how you look at yourself in, in a mask or as deeper layers. So each sermon should peel off a layer of what isn't glorifying to God, or shall we say, put you in the crucible and warm up to make you melt together so God can clean off the chaff. And when that happens and God does that, He's doing His part. He's showing you Himself in a deeper revelation. I love that phrase. Every time I think of that idea... Maybe you've heard that phrase that God gives you a deeper truth. A more personal revelation of Himself. Uh, one of the authors who gave me the greatest definition of faith gave the definition that says this, faith is our personal response to God's revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. And it's a personal revelation and it's a deeper truth the deeper your faith gets. And I believe that. And God is faithful. God knows how to save those who belong to Him. He knows how to present us as holy and righteous. Jesus has done the work. And that's what He was supposed to do. Now the reason I say all that is because last week we talked about coveting and asking wrong and uh, friendship with the world being making yourself an enemy to God. But... At the end of that sermon, I said there were three things we need to do. And I want to tell you that I keep my notes with me from that one. And I said that what we need to do is to forsake our sin, repent, and confess Jesus is Lord. That that's what I asked us to do last week. And I said this week we're going to get the rest of the story. And I promise you, this rest of the story is about your part. So let's get right into the text. <laughs> And look at what James says in verse 7. He says, Therefore, submit to God. Now this submission is in terms of like a military submission. Not a, like a casual submission, but one where, you, where you're going to go where your 
sergeant or general or whoever's immediately over you tells you to go and you do whatever they say to do. When I was in, uh, I guess it was high school, they told of a drill sergeant who said, when I ask you to jump, you don't ask why. You just ask how high. Kind of like that. When God asks you to do something, don't ask why. Say, how high? How far? How long? Get details of what it is why you're doing it. I understood that for a long time and I've always said this. If you disagree with what someone's asking you to do who's in your authority, go about doing it and say, is this the best way to handle it while you're in obedience? Not while you're in refusal because you won't get a listening ear. And that's how that works. But it says here to submit to God. Now, there's a lot of ways we can picture what that means. But submitting to God doesn't mean, yes, you're Lord and I'm not Lord and you know, you're the King of the universe and I'm just a person. That's not what that means. It means more clearly that you agree with what He says, what He directs, and what He asks. Those things. And when you agree with God, that means you're not resisting God, but whatever within you is, you put it aside. You might say, well, that's easier said than done. It is very much easier said than done because I just said it. Now our task is to do it, right? God's job is to be God and direct our lives in the ways that transform us and the world around us for His kingdom. So what He's doing, He's preparing you and me for eternity with Him. And everything He does, He's trying to bring others along with us and us as presented as holy before Him. And that's what He's trying to do. And if we don't submit to that, what we're saying is, God, Your plan doesn't work real good. You don't know what You're doing. Or we have a spirit of rebellion inside. So James says in the rest of this verse, resist the devil. Ah, you didn't know this one. And I read this and I thought, oh, this is really good. The devil doesn't want to get engaged in a fight. He just wants you to go along with him on his terms. You think about Jesus in the wilderness and the devil came to tempt him. And on the third time, Jesus refused. Three times all it took. Refused him three times. And at the third time it says, and the devil left and waited for an opportune moment to come back. But he leaves. You resist him. He's going, i got easier prey over here. Low-hanging fruit. But if you're low-hanging fruit, don't think of it as your job to keep the devil from somebody else. Okay, It's not. Your job is to resist the devil at all fronts, at all points. And a lot of folks um, want to talk about how to do that and what you need to do, but the simple thing to do is get this word in your phrase, in your head, and in your mouth, and repeat it to yourself over and over again. It's easy. No. But, but, but God, I want to do this. No. I'll tell you a true story. 
One of the things that had been wasting my time over the last several weeks was a stupid game on my phone that I'd saw someone say, I can't solve level 300, it's too hard. And I said, well, I'm going to get that game and I'm going to show this guy I know how to do this game. You would think that it would take me a long time to get to level 300. I got there in like seven days. But I didn't sleep much. I wasn't really awake driving the bus. Um, and my wife would laugh at me because I'd be laying in bed playing this game and I'd fall asleep and drop the phone on my head. And I'd pick it back and go, oh, oh, I almost finished the level. If I just watch this ad, they'll let me have another life at it. So I'll watch the ad, which is like 30 seconds. And, and so I close my eyes for this 30 seconds. My wife says, your phone's on your head again. And I wake up and I, and I do the, you know, continue to play the game. It was like, I got to do this. I got to do this. Five days ago, I looked at that game and I said, no, it's gone. And I said, that's good. Well, I got this other game. And I went, no. <laughs> and I deleted that one. There was four others on there and I said, no, no, no. And they were all gone. And I said, oh, cool. Then I picked up my phone and I went, I don't have anything to do on here. I'll just set it back down. It must be just a tool now, not a toy. And I always thought, isn't a phone supposed to be a tool, not a toy? But we've made it into a toy, which makes us want to use it for connection, for entertainment, and all these things. And I had to say, no. I had to. It was consuming my time. If you think that's bad, you would see five and a half to six hours of screen time on my phone from stupid games. A day. Yeah, that's bad. That's called addiction. That's called unhealthy. And so when I said no, now my screen time's down to two hours. That's checking email, uploading sermons and research. Email, things like that. But nothing to do with a game. I'm not saying to you, you have to do that. But if it's taking over your time and you're, you, you're using time that you could have done something else more productive or blessed someone or, or prayed, or if you haven't read the Bible before you played that stuff or prayed and done your devotions before that, it has become ahead of that. And you have to have some serious conversation with yourself to see if you need to say no. It's not the devil, but the devil can use it. And we're very cooperative sometimes, aren't we? We're easy prey. We're easy target in that regard. As a matter of fact, I've learned to avoid on the App Store now games that say, this game is so addictive and fun, I'm going, why are you saying that's good? I don't want to be addicted to anything but Jesus. Where I can't get enough of Jesus. I don't want to be addicted to my phone or a game or the next level or clearing a board or whatever just to show myself I can do that. It's not as important to me as an eternity of life with Christ and I could have spent more time with Him or learning ways to help others. So that word no, that's how you resist the devil. But here's a good thing. It says he's going to run. <laughs> if you resist him, he's going, to, not, he's going to keep tormenting you. He's going to run. But where and how and in what areas of our life do we need to resist the devil? I just mentioned a simple one and James goes a little further. Now this next three verses in this passage clearly tell us how to resist the devil. Really clear. And if you, if you look at it like different verses not related and not talking about how to accomplish a faith-filled, spirit-based life, 
You're going to miss this passage. All the commentators miss this part of it. Here's the first thing you do when you resist the devil. You should draw near to God. God is not far away. He's as close as the mention of His name. As a matter of fact, I would like for Jesus to draw near this morning to all of us. So, could we all say together the name Jesus Christ at the same time and call on Him to be here? Can we do that? Jesus Christ. Say it again. Jesus Christ. He's as close as the mention of His name. And we didn't say that in a way we were upset. We said it in a way where we honored and revered Him. And He says, someone's calling. Here I am. And here He is with us. He's close. That close. And now you've just drawn near to Jesus. Was it difficult? Oh, but, 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 no, let me get back to my game. Jesus Christ is bigger than anything you'll ever encounter. And so if we draw near to God, here's the promise. God does His part, but you've got to do your part. If you seek God, as Jeremiah says in 9, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, if you'll seek God with all your heart, He will be found by you. So if you draw near to God, here's the promise, same thing as in Jeremiah, He will draw next to you. If you're going through a tough situation or you just need some encouragement, say, God, I need you with me. I'm looking for you. I need you. And say, I'm coming, God. Now you come and do your part because I can't get all the way there, so you've got to come here and be with me. And He does. He does that. You might not sense it. You might not feel it. But He's as close as you seeking Him with a heart that seeks Him above circumstance. Do you know what I mean by that? You want God more than you want what God gives or offers. That is the kind of seeking where you seek Him with all your heart. Well, you think, but but you don't understand, Pastor. Sometimes life gets really tough and it's hard to seek God and my mind not be focused on this other stuff because it's so big and so problematic. Well, then bring all that stuff to God. Now you say, well, I've been praying and praying. And that's not what I mean. I say, Lord God, this situation I can't handle. I don't know what to do with it. And if you don't do something, I don't know what's going to get done. And I'm afraid and I'm scared and I'm nervous and I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I read, you know. And I've also read that you can lead me through the troubled seas and through the fire, and join me in my fire as you did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I know you can be with me through this. God, this is dangerous, it's scary, but I need you. And if you start talking to Him about the situation and your confidence and trust that He's done it before, He will draw near to you in those situations. And in the moment when you're doing that, You will notice that your heart and your mind begins to be focused gradually from what you've been stressed over to God. But you've got to persist until, as they say, you pray it through. Until you get all this stuff off your mind and into God's hands so God's what's on your mind. And that's difficult. But here's what happens. 
And this, I believe, is what happens for many of us. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples from this passage in chapter 4 that James talks about. In verse 1, he talks about that the flesh... In verse 1, it's the flesh is against us. It wages war against ourselves. In the fourth verse, the world is against God. And I'm sorry, the flesh against spirit in verse 1. And again, in verse 4 it says that the world is enmity. If you have friendship with the world, you put yourself as an enemy of God. So if you seek the world, you become God's enemy. And then in this section right here, the devil is after your relationship with Christ. Now he's not going to tell you, oh, you don't need Jesus. He's going to say, do this first. Do Him later. A lot of times when I'm getting ready to do my morning devotions and I see something that needs done, I get this argument going on in my head. I need to read this chapter in Scripture. It's what I'm reading today. Oh, but just put this thing over here and these couple things, they're out of place, so let's do that first. Anything to put something above my time with Christ is what the enemy does. The devil's against your relationship with Christ. Now, understand, at many times in those points in our life, when that stuff happens, we don't see it as a ploy of the devil. We just go, yeah, it's a good idea. I'll do that. And then afterward we go, man, I forgot to do my devotions this morning. I was busy doing other stuff. And then we try to make up for it the next day or later on, and we just can't get caught up. But you, you see what's going on here is our eyes have gotten off the prize. The prize has changed to a, a less mess here rather than a less mess here. And here's the exchange. When you see what's happened and you see that you've been taken advantage of and used and manipulated as you went along with it, that there'll be a time when you look at that and go, look what I lost because of that. I could have had so much more time with Christ. I could have learned so much more, but this other stuff just kept distracting me. Or I could have helped people but I was too busy absorbed in trying to fix things in my own life that I never did anything outside of my own sight. And in that moment, when you see the destruction in the world around you that you could have done something about, you begin to grieve a little bit. Could have been a friend that uh, was depressed and you didn't call because you were too busy with something else and you said you'd get to it later. The nudge of the Holy Spirit's put on the back burner. Could have been anything like that. And any time something comes along that seems like, man, I don't know where that came from. Maybe that was the Holy Spirit. I'll have to pray about that and see if that was or not. He's not asking you to pray about it. He's asking you to do something about it when He brings it to your attention. And the reason I say that is because there's going to be a point, if you've never been to this point, where you look at the pain that's in the world around you and inside of you, and you never addressed it. 
And it's going to hurt your heart because you didn't do something when you could have. And maybe one day it'll be too late. Or maybe it'll be too late for one situation and you're going to be standing there going, God, God, I put my hands to this work. And this work, in my mind, it was important and, and necessary and urgent, whether it was or not. I don't know, but I didn't do any of this for you over here. And God, look, there's my friend and, and they're no longer with us. And I should have said what I knew I should have said, but I never said it. And I never took the time because I was too busy with my own stuff rather than your stuff. And you begin to grieve. And at that point, you want to cleanse your hands of the junk that you had your hands in rather than the love you could have had your hands. And you begin to grieve internally and say, God, I have lost the chance. I didn't resist the devil. But I've got to clean my hands off of the stuff of the world that seems important to me and put it back on the place where they belong, which is the restoration and hope of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says in that verse. He doesn't just say cleanse your hands. He says cleanse your hands, you sinners. And that was the verse that the people debated in in text, uh, the different commentators. One said that's talking about people who have never known Jesus. I disagree. Because he wrote this to the church. He didn't write this to the wondering who never go to church and will never read it. He's reading it to the ones who might be in church but got their hands in their own stuff and think it's okay. And justify it before God. Let me share something. If you have to justify something before God and it's God who justifies, you're doing His job. Don't justify what you do. If you have to justify it, you're doing God's job. Does that make sense? Well, I'm doing this, God, because of this. No, you do it because God told you to. You don't have to justify. You don't have to make excuses or reasons for that. Your friends might say, why are you doing that? God told me, you're crazy. (laughs) I might be crazy for Jesus, but I'm not insane for not following Him. Because those who do not follow Christ are going to end up dead eternally forever. That is the truth. And it's insanity to think that that's better to have a pleasure on this world for a little while and be dead forever than to live for Christ now and be alive forever and also spreading the love and grace and mercy, which is what He's all about. I don't see anything wrong with that. Do you? Loving people, giving grace and kindnesses and doing good works out of the love of God in your heart? If someone has to call you crazy to do that, they don't understand love. And that means they need some more of it. (laughs) And there's your next target. That you want Jesus to get a hold of. So, cleanse your hands, you sinners. God, and this is the prayer. God, my hands have done a lot of things. My eyes have seen a lot of things. My ears have heard a lot of things. And not all of them have been glorifying you. And God, some of those things have actually detrimental, been detrimental to others. And if you don't know this, I'm going to ask God to give you a deeper revelation today to show you this truth. That there are things in your life that have hurt others. And that have hurt God's kingdom and have not promoted it. And if you don't know that, that that heartbreak 
that could have been a heart relief. Because uh, James says in the end of this chapter, you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it for you, that's a sin. If you refuse to do the good, that's right in front of you. If you refuse it. So cleanse your hands, censors. And purify your hearts. Ah, purify your hearts. Ah, that's the good one. You ever known how to purify your own heart? There's only one way to purify your heart that I've ever known and that Scripture has ever talked about. And, and, and by the way, it says the ones who need to purify their heart are the ones who are double-minded. The only way I know of to purify the heart is to speak the truth. You can't speak this thing about somebody and go say something different about them over there and they both be true. It's to speak the truth in love. That's how you purify your speech, but your speech has to come from a heart that comes from a mind that isn't going two directions. We talked about this a long time ago in a sermon where I talked about double-minded, where you present this way and present that way, and you can't go either way. It's like you're going this way and this way at the same time. It's, you're unstable. You never know which way you're going to go at any given moment. Well, I love Jesus, but I love this too. But I feel guilty when I do this, so I need some more Jesus. Oh, but that's over there too. And how does anybody know what you're going to be doing at any given moment? If you have two loyalties, because you cannot serve both. You cannot have two minds about one thing. You can have one mind about one thing, and you can do that one thing. But you can't have two thoughts about it because you'll never make a decision. I love this illustration, and, and I hate it at the same time because it's true for me as well. The worst thing I want to do is give my sons $20 and go say, go buy something at Walmart. Pick something out you like and uh, come back and we'll get it. Do not ever succumb yourself to, to say this. My sons listen to this. They know this is true. They cannot make up their mind. But if I buy this, I can't buy that. And if I buy that, I can't buy that. And I, oh, but this is cool too. But I haven't seen everything yet. Wonder where they get that from. I used to drive all over Paducah trying to different stores to find a different price, which was lowest to save 10 cents. Taking me three hours to get a better deal. 20 cents. Hey, I saved 20 cents. Drove three hours to do it. Hated to spend wasted, but I still saved 20 cents. So I talk about the 20 cents rather than my stupidity. And you know what's really crazy? I'm different than that now. I have an app on my phone that's a tool that tells me the gas prices around me. And I always try to go to the cheapest one. But one day I was sitting uh, at a stoplight and I pulled out. I said, i got to get gas. I just where I usually get it. It's cheapest. And I said, well, that place is five miles away. That means ten minutes there, ten minutes back in traffic, plus the gas to get there and back to save two cents a gallon. And I thought it's 20 minutes and 36 cents and the time and the gas that it would take to save that 36 cents better than just pulling in right here where it's two cents more. I pulled in right there. I got done quick and I went, I have a half an hour. I don't know what to do with. Oh, I got a game on my phone. <laughs> Five minutes, all the game takes. But I deleted the game. So what did I do? I went to work early and cleaned the bus.
That's what I did. Because I'd always complain, I never had time to clean the bus. <laughs> you understand, when, when things start lining up with logic and truth, God ordains and orders your life. He puts things in the right order when you're following Him. If you have two minds about things, you're double-minded. And what do you got to do? Get your heart straight. Know your direction and know why that's your direction. And if you don't know it, you're going to struggle. And in verse 9, lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now let me tell you why. And this is so powerful. Because if you think you have it all together, and you think that your life is going the way it should go, one day you're going to look and see, I had no clue what I was doing. Then my laughter and my times of joy weren't really joyous. It was just a cover. I wasn't really happy. My joy was just the world's joy and temporary and it wasn't long-lasting. And it goes away. Everything the world gives you goes away. Everything God provides to you is permanent. The world can't give you stuff that won't go away. But we fight over that stuff and war over it and covet it. And so he says, look at your life. And if you've been satisfied or settled inside that your life without the fullness of God in you, that your life settling on sinful choices and not trying to learn to be a better believer and follow Christ and love others better, and you look at your life and you don't grieve the fact that you didn't do all you could do, there's a problem here. Because we are supposed to be about the business of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. We're learning from Him how to live. But if we're telling Him... What comes first? He can't tell us. And if we say, well, let me do this first, God, and I'll get around to that. You're telling Him what your priority is and how you're going to do things rather than submitting. You're saying, God, I chose what's first for me. And He keeps saying, seek me. Seek the kingdom. Seek my righteousness. And all this other stuff you're trying to throw in front of me is going to be there in the right way. But once you see the damage and the train wreck of destruction your life has made because you didn't follow God, you're going to look back and go, what a waste I've been. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Schindler's List, but the end of that movie, toward the end, when the war is over, and Oscar Schindler is getting ready to leave the factory where he has the Jewish workers and he's getting ready to leave so he doesn't get on trial as a German citizen in the war effort and he's having to leave and he's standing by his car and he looks around and he says I could have done more 
I could have done more. And his best friend, a Jewish accountant, says, you've saved 3,000 people in this factory. He says, but you don't understand. I've wasted so much time. I've wasted so much money. This ring on my finger, five lives I could have saved. This car, I could have driven a lesser model and 30 lives could have been saved. I could have done so much more. But I spent and wasted everything that didn't matter on stuff that could have been spent on stuff that did. There's going to come a time when you grieve those choices and verse 10 will come true for you. That you will come before God humbly and it says in the Amplified, feeling insignificant either in your efforts or your use of time and resources. And you'll be in the presence of the Lord feeling insignificant. And it says, in that moment, God will see your weeping over the fact that you desire His heart now and His plans and His purposes in the world around you. And you realize, I should do different. In that moment, He's going to exalt you. You just say, that's my child's heart. That's my heart and my child. That's what I was looking for. Then He's going to pick you up and say, now I can use you because you're after my purposes in the kingdom and I will make your life have significance. So often we say, humble yourself in God's sight and He will lift you up or God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. But what it really is saying is those who come before God knowing that they could do more, but they haven't. And they ask for forgiveness. Why? Because our part is to learn what our part is in the kingdom. And God's part is to enable us to do it and do it more. False believers think they're doing enough. False believers think they've said enough. That there's no more work to be done for the kingdom. False believers will tell you that all you have to do is pray, read the Bible, go to church. And that's what a Christian is. Let me tell you something. There's nothing in there in those words about service and loving one another and meeting the needs of your stranger on the street. But the heart of God is for the world and our heart's 10 million miles from His heart. And if you don't see that in your heart, you haven't looked at God's heart closely. Our hearts are unrighteous. They're double-minded. They're sinful. And if you don't weep over that because you're not as God wants you to be and you haven't submitted to that and you've been resistant, then you haven't come face to face with your own rebellion against God. And you haven't had that struggle yet. But God's trying to get you there. And to say, hunger for Me that my heart would be planted in you. That you won't be about your own business anymore and trying to protect your self-interests, but you're interested in me. Here's the way I can say it. If communion for you is not a holy, holy ground moment for you, you're probably not having communion. You're having juice and bread. 
And if the life of Christ isn't something where you want to love others greater and greater measures, and you want to pour out the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to those broken people all around us that don't know Him and will die without Jesus Christ, if you don't have a compassion for that, it's because your heart hasn't been broken, you haven't wept and mourned and cleansed your hands yet, and you're still double-minded about what you do for God. And that's what James is saying. Come as insignificant to God. And say, God, I can't do what You do. But I want to help. I want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the church that loves first. Would you pray with me? God, so often we want to do our part and say, I've done my part. Without asking you, what else is there? Have I done it faithfully? Can I serve you, Heavenly Father? How may I bring forth something that would please you? The most beautiful thing that you said in all the Scripture in my heart is what you said over your son the day he was baptized. You roared like thunder from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in that moment, He hadn't done a ministry thing. But what He had done is loved you with His whole heart, followed you, and been willing to do what you say no matter when or how. And in that, you took pleasure in Him. Heavenly Father, that you would look at us and say, There's one just like my Son delights in me, follows me, knows they can't do it without me, and won't even try. So Heavenly Father, may we be so named as yours, and you wear a banner over us that makes you smile. This is my prayer. Amen. We're getting ready for...